You shall also make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its width, and a cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold, and make a molding of gold all around. And you shall make for it a frame of a handbreadth all around. And you shall make a gold molding for the frame all around. That's two crowns. And you shall make for it four rings of gold, and put the rings on the four corners of the uh, uh, four corners that are its four legs. And the rings shall be close to the frame, as holders for the poles to bear the table. And you shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and that the table may be carried with them. You shall make its dishes, its pans, its pitchers, and its bowls for pouring. You shall make them of pure gold. And you shall set the showbread, literally, the bread of my face, on the table before me always. Will you pray with me, please? God, I thank you for the privilege of being able to take this time this afternoon to be in your word. I thank you for all that you intend to accomplish. I know, Lord, you know every one of us here. And because you know every one of us here, you know what we have in our hearts that is good as we embrace you in those parts that are still in need of correction and reform. So Lord, I pray that you would do your work here today, that we would have so much fun in your word today, that it would burst open and come alive and make more sense than it ever has, that we would understand your love, we would understand your character, we would understand your intention, we would understand who we are in you, we would understand all of that today as we open your word. God, I pray today that we would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, see divinely those things which only can be spiritually discerned. That you would speak to every one of us at our heart of hearts today, regardless of how open and on our sleeve our heart would be or how locked up and secluded and and guarded it may be. Get in today. And as you do, Lord, do your work. Draw us into that beautiful intimate, celebrant relationship with you. So I pray for that fresh anointing of your Holy Spirit. Immerse me that I would disappear and you would be seen. And then, Lord God, I pray that you would completely come upon me, that you would do through me what I cannot humanly do. Minister now to every one of us, we pray. And if there be any who have yet to know you, let this be the day of their salvation, I pray, as we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be your authority. The Bible is the authority, not me. We are now in our text where God has started the beginning of this chapter that the nation of Israel has been pulled out of the land of Israel. I'm sorry, out of the land of Egypt since chapter 12 and 13. Since then, God has been taking them in route ultimately to this place. We know this because in chapter 3, when God spoke and called Moses to this role, he had said, and you will return to this mountain that God was speaking to him at at that point, and you will worship me there. That mountain was Mount Choreb or Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai. It's the same mountain the people are at. So... In between of chapter 3, when Moses had gone and made things really uncomfortable for the Egyptians, proving that there was no other God or Lord to be worshipped but the living one that we serve, 
systematically disqualifying everything that has been put up on display to worship. It ends then, of course, with the nation coming out. And now a nation is born. A nation which, by the way, will say to Jesus in John 8, we've never been in captivity, for which Jesus would say, if anyone sins, they're a slave to it. They had been in captivity at their birth. The nation was born a nation on its knees. So in chapter 13, the process begins now of not getting them out of Egypt, but getting Egypt out of them. The same thing will happen to you if you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ. It's where it all starts. You're born a slave. Every one of us born with the nature of Adam, the fallen man. Now, you don't have to like it, nor do you have to agree. But you don't have to agree with gravity either. But when you jump off the building, either you will agree or live in fervent denial of the pain you suffer from the effects of it. But sooner or later, you're going to have to reconcile that there is a God that you need to stand before. And there is a fallen nature that needs to be reconciled. God told us this. We are born slaves, but in His infinite love for us, because of our slavery, the Lamb of God must be slaughtered. The Son must die. And God sends His only begotten Son. Only begotten in the Greek, monogenes. Mono meaning one genes, like gene. Jesus is the only one from the Father's gene pool. Oh, He has many children now because my God is into adoption of which I am one of the products of that. Prayerfully, so are you. But I am not of God's gene pool. Jesus is. With that, then, he sends Jesus, innocent, tempted in every way, yet innocent, and dies on the cross to pay the price for your and my sin, my guilt, your guilt, so that it could be paid for in full and then rises from the dead on the third day. And the moment we accepted his gift, we were removed from the land of slavery, from the hand of the enemy, just like Israel was Egypt. The problem is when we read the New Testament, we read you have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. And you think, well, which one is it? And the answer is yes. All three. You have been saved the moment you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ. You have been saved from the penalty of your sin. It's that simple. Now, if you've not accepted that gift, let me let you know you'll have that opportunity today. If you have accepted that gift, congratulations, you have now been adopted into the family and you are now free from the penalty of your sin. However, you've lived your life as a sinner and sin still has quite a bit of power over you. It's part of your programming, and God has the, the blessing of reprogramming you. And so as we are still living on earth, God is saving us from the power of sin. Saved from its penalty, now saved from its power. But there will be a day when we stand before Him, when we will be rescued even from the very presence of sin. We won't even see it anymore, no, nor know it. Glory to God for that. Now, Jesus would say, you search the Scriptures thinking by them you possess eternal life, but these are the ones that testify of me. In the Gospel of Luke, when two men are on their way to Emmaus, escaping out of Jerusalem after Jesus' execution, Jesus meets them on the way, one of them named Cleopas. And as they walk, Jesus gives them a Bible study, starting with Moses, right where we're at. And he walks them through the, what a Bible study that would be. 
through the law and the prophets. Could you imagine God teaching you how all the Scripture points to Him? And I do believe that. I do believe all Scripture points to Jesus. Here we are in Exodus 1,400 years before Jesus comes born as a baby, and we have this beautiful testimony of this thing called, a, an, well, it starts with a tabernacle. That's where it starts. Now, that tabernacle, by the way, God says in Genesis, I'm sorry, in Exodus 25, in verse 8, make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. It's the, it's the first time that God will dwell among them since they were together in Eden. And interesting, because as I look towards the end of the book, and forgive me, my eyes are a little bit janky today. It says this in Revelation 21, verses 2 and 3. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Verse 3 says, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. Understand, what God has always wanted was to dwell with you. And so God starts to prepare things. Interesting, because he talks about the tabernacle of God. That there is a tabernacling of God with man in heaven. That's what makes heaven, heaven. It isn't the absence of illness. It isn't that your cranky neighbor won't live next to you anymore. It isn't that you'll have to deal with the horrible politics around you or that you'll ever be taxed again. It isn't that anyone will ever ask you out and ever you'll have to question what their motives were. Any of that. When someone says something nice, they're not selling you something. But that isn't what makes heaven heaven. If all that was there and Jesus wasn't there, it wouldn't be heaven at all. But in the end of it all, it is for him because he gets us. So here we are now in the second of the the items that God starts to make in this tabernacle. He starts, by the way, from his perspective. The first item, as you remember, was an ark. An ark, by the way, for which he would dwell between two cherubim on a bloody seat. And that was last week's message. This week, now we get to the table of showbread. And it seems like such an odd item, or, or is it? And we'll have here, really, from 23 to 30, this particular table, and then from 31 to 40, the lampstand, and that will be the chapter. The next chapter will be about the tent itself, the chapter after that, the outside of the area, the courtyard area. And understand, with each bit of this, God is trying to teach us much as He points us to Jesus. So dig in with me, would you please? He starts with this in Exodus 25, verse 23. He says, You shall make a table of acacia wood. Acacia wood, shittim wood is one of the hardest woods. It's full of resin. It gets real solid and it handles climatic changes quite well. God knows what he's doing. He invented it for this. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its width, and a cubit and a half its height. Can anyone tell me from last two weeks how long a cubit is? Excellent. I see it. Go ahead and show me. It's the distance between your elbow on the average person, so not necessarily Peter or myself, but from your elbow to the tip of your finger of a person roughly about five and a half feet tall. So with that, that's our, that's our gauge. Roughly that of about a half a meter. Roughly. So two cubits, roughly a meter. That gives you the idea. And as he speaks about this, understand this is the first time in Scripture. Now, we're 25 chapters into Exodus. We've had 50 chapters in Genesis. And we've never seen the word table until now. This is the first table. And I'd like you to think about how odd it is here that it is. I want to remind you, we're in the wilderness. 
And in the wilderness, here we are in God's says, now let's set up a table. Now, throughout Scripture, God is going to lay out basically two tables. And again, don't just believe me. I'll give you some Scriptures to show you. But in that, there are really basically, in all of Scripture, two basic tables. And they, all, they both belong, in essence, to royalty, if you will. Or at least to some form of authority. In Judges chapter 1, verse 7, there was a king named Adonai Bezak. Or Adonai Bezek. He, by the way, now was thrown under the table of the kings, of the judges of the day. And they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Seems a bit strange, I would agree. And then he says, well, that's exactly what I had done to kings before this point who used to sit underneath my table. So he got his retribution. In 1 Samuel 20, there was Saul. And it was Saul living in a very evil state. It is at the table that he proves that he has hatred and wants to kill David. In 1 Kings, we see that there was the table of Jezebel for which all of the prophets of Baal would actually sit in Ashtoreth. So there is this, this table for which evil dwells. On the other side of it is another table. A table, by the way, for instance, when David, replacing Saul in 1 Samuel 9, takes, David, takes Saul's grandson, Mephibosheth, broken, made crippled by the fall. He had been dropped as a baby when fleeing. Considered an enemy to David from the perspective that he was a relative of his predecessor. But David instead shows kindness, love, and mercy to him and brings him to the table and has him sit there as one of his own family members. Though, though listen, though his enemy, though clearly in opposition by family, by birth, David shows grace and has him there and lets him spend the rest of his life there in a sense. Solomon will actually recline at the table and call out in First Samuel's or First Kings. But I can't help but think of the text in Psalm 23, where we're told, "The Lord is my shepherd." Because it says, in the midst of all of these great things that a shepherd does, which includes, by the way, leading us beside still waters, besides, and it's the making us to lie down in green pastures. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I won't fear because you're with me, your rod and your, your staff, you, they comfort me. And I, I, I get all of that, right? As a shepherd, and even as an under-shepherd. When a, a, a chief shepherd leads under-shepherds, he takes his rod and he holds it out so that others could grab a hold of it. They could be brought through a scary ravine. I understand that. But then at the end he says, but you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And that seems like such a strange thing for a shepherd. Could you imagine all the sheep are like, sheepy, sit down, fluffies, sit down. I've got a table for you. And what's he making on the table? Grass? I mean, what are they eating? But David is actually taking it now to his own life. It's more than him just being a sheep now in regards to literally. He's taking it now in his genuine relationship. Now understand, if I were inviting you into my home, I would be inviting you into my family. The moment that Kiel would be invited into my home, he would be Kiel Holiday as long as he's there. It's one of the reasons why, it's our surname by the way, uh, that's one of the reasons why the, the Jewish people had such an issue with you entering into the home of a Gentile. And the moment that I invited him in, he was as much of a son to me as anyone would be by honor. And so with that in mind, it was my responsibility to come between him and anybody that was going to come and rise up against him. That was the responsibility. But what I would do is I would take him and I would take him to the farthest room and at the farthest room there would be a room with no windows and where that room with no windows was, I would have him sit because it was the safest place. No one could get up behind him. 
and I would set up a table and I would prepare his meal before him. And if someone were to come to the door and say, I've come to kill, kill. I'd say, you're going to have to get through me first because you're in my house. But you can imagine after such a thing, I might have turned around and said, Kiel, I didn't know you had enemies like that. What were you doing? You should have told me that before I invited you in. But in Psalm 23, it says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. This is Jesus having Kiel sit down and look at his enemies and going, see this? I'm called wall. That's what I'm called. You're safe, Kiel. And that's the idea here. It's interesting because Jesus actually tells his boys when breaking bread. I won't break this again with you. I won't eat this and drink of this until I eat with this before you, before the table in my kingdom. I think there's something profound about that. That there's a table in heaven where a good king sits. Where those who have no right to approach him, broken and crippled by our own fall, are brought by His mercy to His table to be adopted into His family, to live with Him forever. What a gift that is. And so God says, look at I want you to set up the second thing. Now notice, by the way, it's not called an altar. Now, you won't actually find another altar until chapter 27, and even that one will be outside in the courtyard. You actually won't find the other one until chapter 30, the one that's actually in the holy place. Now understand, an altar is a place where you bring an offering to God. Please understand, we're starting this thing with the ark where God is and we're going from the Holy of Holies, the Kaddish Kaddishim, into the next little section of this tent which is called the Holy Place, the Kaddishim. And in that place, understand, this chapter, God is not going to give anything that's your responsibility. Let me say that again. God is not going to put anything yet that is your responsibility. This isn't about you coming to God with all of your good works, all of your great intentions, all of your niceness or your darn lovability. This is about God coming out to you. So everything represents what He does, not what you do. And that's the key. As a matter of fact, He won't even talk about the altar of incense until He actually shows it in light of the priest's responsibility, which still reflects Him because He's our great high priest. So here's where it starts. So, you take a table, and notice this, by the way, and, and I don't want to say who because I don't want to embarrass Allie, but um, ah, bless her for this. Here's a mock-up of the table to scale. Now notice that's not a very big thing. As a matter of fact, it's relatively a small item. On this particular, this particular table, we read that there are going to be things called lemech panim. Can you say lemech panim? Lamech means bread, panim means face. When God says, for instance, I will have no more gods or no other gods before me, literally it's before my face. So we have these loaves of bread. There will be, according to Leviticus 23, there will be 12 loaves of bread. Does anyone know why there will be 12 loaves of bread? 12 tribes. Excellent. One for each tribe. Hey, look at there. You are Judah. Hey, look at Gad. There's your loaf. That's the idea. Now, traditionally, and I'm not telling you what's in Scripture because it's not, but tradition, the Jewish tradition is, is that, well, the requirement is you replace them once a week on, on Shabbat, on Sabbath. But the tradition is that they stayed warm throughout the week. I don't know about that, but could you imagine walking in and thinking, fresh-smelling bread? That's a pretty darn good thing, unless you're a celiac, but it still might smell good. Um, I don't know what people did in those days because bread was their source of life. So, if you like were gluten intolerant. Anyways, so... But get the idea, there was this, and this thing was set up, and it was intended to be carried just like the other, as we'll see here in a moment. But understand, here's our second thing. The first thing was this place that was a bloody seat where God dwelt. That was the first thing. 
And now we see this is how God wants to get to us. And this is our next thing in it. Now notice, make the table. That's the getting. Overlay it with gold, which again, God is going to constantly refer to in regards to faith. That's going to be our second thing, by the way. Oh, and by the way, for that uh, two-table thing, I challenge you to look on your own in 1 Corinthians 10.21, when we're talking about communion, because it says you can't share the table of God with the table of demons, uh, for what it's worth. Now, in that it says, overlay with pure gold, and then you make a molding. And that's the idea. There will be these two crowns, these two moldings. And with that it says, you shall make a frame, a hand breath. Now, that's another measurement. What's a hand breath? Who can show me a hand breath? Excellent. High five. It's from here to here. It's the distance from the end of your pinky to the end of your thumb. It's like shakak. So, for most of you don't know, that's a California term. That's like hang loose. Shakak. Shall make a frame about a hand breadth all around, and you shall make a gold molding for the frame all around. And you shall make four rings of gold and put on the rings, the four, uh, the four corners that are on its legs. So the rings shall be close to the frame, it's the holders of the pole, so they can bear the table. And understand why. You'll make the poles of acacia wood, overlay them with gold, that the table may be carried. Now God makes really clear here, this whole thing is going to reply, is in essence, it's going to be emblematic of God's provision. What God provides. Interesting, because of course the whole point of this table is to show bread. Does anyone remember the first time bread was mentioned in Scripture? It's pretty sad, actually. The first time that bread was mentioned is in Genesis 3.19, when God speaks to Adam and says, In the sweat of your face you will eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of dust you were taken, dust you shall return. That's our first mention of bread. The second mention, for what it's worth, is Genesis chapter 14, and I, I believe it's about verse 18, when it's Melchizedek, who not only takes bread out, but also takes out wine to celebrate Abraham's victory in rescuing his nephew. It was the bread, by the way, that Moses would be invited to break when he met this cute girl at a well, gives her water, and she runs back to dad with her sheep. And dad says, why are you back so soon? And she said, this guy helped us get water. She said, why didn't you invite him back to break bread? So she goes and says, hey, my dad wants you to come home with us so you can break bread. Oh, okay. Shortly thereafter, he's marrying that girl that invited him into the house. Zipporah. That was Moses' encounter with bread. And then it was chapter 12 of Exodus when God said, you're going to make a special bread, unleavened. And that unleavened bread, well, that unleavened bread is going to be a testimony of how quickly you need to get out because I'm going to deliver you today from your bondage. That's what Moses knew before he actually left Egypt. Once Moses had left Egypt, it was chapter 16 when the people said, we missed the bread of Egypt. God says, I'll do something really weird. I'll rain bread down from heaven so you'll know that I'm the Lord. In that, God will say, now I want you to put a couple omers of that in the, uh, in, in, omer, in, a, in a jar because I want you to be able to contain this, to be always reminded that I can give you this, that I am your provision as well as your provider. 
In our text here, it tells us this, that there's a frame around it and there are poles because this is to be carried. This is going to be our testimony of God's provision, that God does the providing, not you, but God does the providing. And here's the big issue, is that God wants to make sure you realize this isn't on location. It's a wacky thing. It still happens in churches today because you can get the whatever the location is blessing. As God continues to bless this, people will come for the London blessing. It's the Toronto blessing. It's the Boston blessing. It's the Pensacola blessing. It's the South Africa blessing of Cape Town. It's the blessing of Jonestown. Well, some of them aren't such a blessing. And what happens is people go there because they're like, that's where God is. Well, that would really stink if we were in church here and God was somewhere else, don't you think? What a sorry place this would be. We're all meeting and talking about somebody that's so far away. Listen, i got a story to tell you. Because this is exactly the way the world thinks to this day, and we're not to buy into it. If you're in your Bibles and you can get there, turn to 1 Kings chapter 20. It's a really great story, but it's one of my favorites when I think of God being on location. In chapter 20 of 1 Kings, we read this. Now Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his forces together, 32 kings who were with him, with horses and chariots, and he went up and besieged Samaria and made war against it. During this time, there's the seventh king of the northern area after Israel and Judah split, had a civil war. That would be after Solomon. The seventh king is the most wicked of them to date. His name is Ahav. Ahav, and God says, as if the guy wasn't nasty or rank or whatever the term you want to use, enough as is, but then he married that Jezebel just to make things worse. The one for whom all of these prophets of Esther and Baal would sit at her table. At this point now, he's, he's made the capital not Jerusalem, because that's in the south, so he's made it Samaria. The king of Assyria at the time, Ben-Hadad, now has now taken his army and they have besieged, they've besieged Samaria, which is a hilly area. And this is what happens. To give you an idea how where things have gone. He sends a, a, a group of guys over to, this, to speak to the king, King Ahav. And as he sends them to speak to the king, here's his message. <clears throat> king Ben-Hadad would like you to know, all of your gold's mine. All of your silver is mine. All of your really pretty wives are mine. You could keep the ugly ones. All of the pretty children, they're mine too. For which the king says, okay. And he goes, hmm. So they go back to tell the king and they come back a second time. They go, well, that was easy. We should have bargained higher. So not only, so they come back, not only is the gold ours and the silver ours and your cute wives and your cute children, but we're going to have all of our servants walk through your houses and whatever they want, your flat screen, your iPhone, it doesn't matter. We'll take that too. And at this point, he goes, well, hold on a second. He turns around to the elders and goes, I think this guy's looking for trouble. It took you that far, did it? You would have happily given up your gold, silver wives and children and that would have been okay. Now he wants the rest of your stuff and now you said that's too much. Oh, you wouldn't have got up to my kids. 
or my wife. That would be, you know, gold and silver I'm not as concerned about. I don't have any. But in regards to the other things, yeah, take what you know, yeah, there you go. And you get to this point and you realize how many times you get, God will allow you to compromise till you get pushed to this point where you realize, man, this is a really grave decision you're making. So God says, I tell you what, let's, let's, let's deal with this situation. So I tell you what, let's go take him down. And now God's speaking to this wicked king directly. King Ahab says, well, who are you going to do it by? And he says, the young men. Young men, it's just about every one of you here. God wants to use you. And he goes, well, who's going to lead him? And God says, well, you are, King Ahav. Okay. So off they go to battle. And that's where we're at in the text. And I'm just kind of summing up a bit to kind of keep things flowing. And it says then, at that point, and, and I do kind of like this, verse 16. So they went out at noon. Meanwhile, Ben-Hadad and the 20, 32 kings helping him were getting drunk at the command post. So imagine, here's the king, oh, we're going to fight them any moment now. The, idea. the young leaders did so, and they said the men are so. The young leaders of the province went out first, and Ben Hadad sent out a patrol, and they told them this. It says men are coming out of Samaria, and he said, "Well, if they have come out for peace, take them alive. If they have come out for war, take them alive." You can tell he's good with decision making. Then these young leaders of the provinces went out of the city with the army and followed them, and each one killed his man. So the Syrians fled, and Israel pursued them. And Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, escaped on a horse with the cavalry. Then the king of Israel went out and attacked the horses and chariots and killed the Syrians with a great slaughter. And the prophet came to the king of Israel, and he said to him, Now go strengthen yourself, take note, and see what you should do. For in the spring of the year, the king of Syria will come up against you again. Now, what happens is everything starts raining in the Middle East. So we all fight in the fall then we all basically take a half time. You know, during our intercession, our intermission, we all go strengthen our armies because we just know in the spring, it's sort of like, all right, I'll kill you again in the spring. Time, you know, it's like the whistle blows and we go back to our, our locker rooms. So God says, I just want to warn you, this battle is going to ensue again. And here's the whole point that relates to our text. The servants of this king, Ben-Hadad, now speak to him. Notice this now in verse 23. Then the servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods are the gods of the hills. Therefore, they were stronger than we. But if we fight them in the plain, surely we'll be stronger than they are. So do this thing. Dismiss the kings, each to his position, put captains in their places because those guys know how to fight. And you shall muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse, chariot for chariot, Let's go and fight against them on the plain. Surely we'll be stronger than them. And so he listened to the voice of them and did so. So it was in the spring of the year when Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Afek to fight against Israel that the children of Israel were mustered and given provisions. And they went against them. Now the children of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats, which you're probably aware of doesn't seem very intimidating while the Syrians filled the countryside. Now, if you were to look at it from a bird's eye view, you would tend to think things don't look so good for Israel if all you were doing was following your eyes. Then a man of God came and spoke to the king of Israel, and he said, Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said the Lord is God of the hills, but he's not God of the valleys, therefore I will deliver all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And God, by the way, is 
constantly on the agenda with this wicked king Ahab for him to know that this is the Lord he's dealing with. What happens? They ultimately camp against each other for seven days and they lock into battle. And by the time that they um, get into battle, it says that Israel will kill 100,000 foot soldiers. And then a bunch of guys will flee and then 27,000 of them will die because a wall falls on them. That's a big wall. Or lots of little people. It's like, imagine, you know, I ran away from the army. Ah, oh, we're safe. We're hiding behind the wall. Boom! Well, I guess they ain't so safe anymore. Now listen. There were two battles to be fought. There was a God of the hills, and then there was a God of the valleys. Can I say that becomes a problem with every one of us? For some of us, we love him because he's the God of the hills. In other words, our high, our high points. Things are really good. And I'm just, I'm just praising God because things are good. You know, and it's like, okay, because he's God of the hills. Now there's some of you, by the way, he's not your God of the hill. And that's the problem. Is when things are going good, he's the last guy you talk to. In which case, it's amazing he ever puts you up there. You know, when someone's like, I just think God wants me well, I'm like, well, well, I'm just so sick. I don't understand why God would want me sick. And I'm like, let me ask you, when you're really well, where are you at with the Lord? Not so good. It's amazing if he ever heals you at all then. Because nothing is more important to God than your relationship with him. Nothing is more important. And he'd rather have you with one arm than none. Or not at all. You're like, God, I just really need to win the lottery. God says, but I know that if you did, we'd never talk. And I'm not into that. Now, I don't know about you, but there'd be that part of me that tries to convince myself, oh, yes, God, I'm sure that I would talk to you more. God's like, I know better. And for some, that becomes the problem. God, you know what? I just need you to provide for me up at those really high points. Just keep me there. But these people are like, well, of course he's the God of the, of the high points. That's even what Satan said about Job. I'll put him in a valley and see what happens. And to be honest, that's when the world starts looking. It's the moment when things get really ugly. When circumstances really don't look like they're right. That the world starts to look and say, let's see your God now. Is he God of the valley too? Funny, when the Lord was our shepherd in Psalm 23, he says, even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that seems like a pretty low valley, don't you think? That's the value that says, I'm not too sure I'm going to actually come out of this one alive, but I'm not going to be afraid because you're with me. And understand, God is constantly seeking to prove to us that he's the God of both. And then what happens, strangely enough, is that we stop having either. The life of an unbeliever is the life of a roller coaster. It's a lift ride. You're on the third floor one day and the, second, and the next day you're on ground floor. But that's because all we have are circumstances to guide us. Let's be honest. You know, Nathaniel one day gets a new bike. He is up on the hill. This is a good one, man. It's got the whole ching-ching, cool little bell. And when he pedals, a light goes on. And, these, these, and, and the more he pedals, neon lights light up his frame. He's got like, he's like decked out his bike. And he like it plays. Da, 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 da. I'm pedaling. Da, da, da. He's just looking good. Everyone looks and goes, Ooh, Nathaniel, I like your bike. Nathaniel takes it back to Hackney and somebody steals it. And you know what he's going to tell you? I'm gutted. I was... Yes, I was, I was riding my bike yesterday. It was great. It was all these people loving me. 
And today I'm gutty because I don't have my bike. I have to, I have to take the bus. Now, if Nathaniel didn't have Jesus, all he had was his bike. He named it Bikey. But the moment that Nathaniel has Christ, everything else is secondary. You could still be like, yeah, it's a bummer I lost my bike, but I still have Jesus. I wasn't going to ride my bike to heaven anyways. I had a Jeep. I've never loved cars. I'm not the kind of when you sit on the side of the road and someone goes, oh, there was a 1967 Riviera window with the palsy. I'm like, I, you're speaking another language. Cool. But I liked Jeeps. Four-door, take the top down in California, you could tear it up in the sand. But I let it go because I wasn't going to drive it to heaven anyways. Now my kids still make fun of it with me. Jeepy. But in the end of it all, here's the point. Is that if your life is still a way roller coaster ride, the Lord needs to be more of you. Because the bottom line is, is He never changes. Oh, that doesn't mean hurricanes aren't going to happen, and that doesn't even mean rough things aren't going to come about. But when I'm walking with Jesus, good should be the bottom of my barrel. So when people say, How are you doing? and you hear me just say, Good, ask me what's wrong. What that means, should mean, is that my walk isn't where it should be. Because to be honest, I'm known as the so good guy because I am. Not, not in regards to my behavior, but in regards to the way that my life is awesome. And it isn't just because I have an amazing wife and an amazing children and an amazing fellowship and an amazing place and an amazing ministry that I get to be a part of. It's because I have an amazing Lord who never changes. And this thing is supposed to be carried with me. This testimony of God's provision is not about church. It's about life. And Jesus isn't going to provide any less here than in the valley or in the hill or in America or in the, the, the lakes of Bhutan or in Bangladesh or in you name it. Wherever he puts you, God is not not going to be there. It's David who would say, even if I make my bed in hell, you're still there. But it seems like he celebrates it. It's like you searched me and you know me. It's like, God, you're my favorite stalker. And I love it. You know my rising up and my sitting down and my lying down, my thoughts from afar. I can't even think it and you know it before it happened. You know the end of it and I'm still trying to figure out what I'm thinking. You know all my breaths. You've numbered the hairs on my head. And God would say, look, at you have 75,823 breaths left. I'd be like, Really? You know, and the point is, is like, and God's like, look at, you know, you have 23,000 hairs left. Left. Anyway. <laughs> now follow me. Follow me on this. Because this gets so beautiful as this thing wraps up, friends. I want you to take this with you. I want you to take the hope that comes with provision, knowing that God, now listen, God is not just my provider. He's my provision. That becomes the challenge when we talk about God's provision. When Jesus speaks in John 6, he, when we speak about bread, he doesn't say, I give the bread of life. He says, I am the bread of life. Don't miss the difference. This is what makes God so profound. He's not just the table. He's the bread that sits on it. And we could live our lives as if Jesus were the great cosmic candy store instead of the great Christ. 
And what happens is I come to Jesus for things instead of for Jesus to be them. God, I'm lonely. Give me some peace. God, I'm confused. Give me some clarity. God, I'm afraid. Give me some rest. Whatever it be. And yet Jesus says, I am your rest. Jesus says, I am your peace. And I realize that if I put Jesus into the mix, because that's what he wants, I really get what I want. Now follow me on this. And so in all of this, by the way, it says that in verse 29, and we're almost done, believe it or not. In verse 29 it says, you shall make its dishes, its pans and its pitchers and its bowls for pouring. You shall make them of pure gold. And I kind of think, okay, kind of got the idea of dishes. They're, they're loaves of bread. Kind of got the idea here of pans. You've got to make bread. Pitchers. And you kind of go, yeah, that's a little weird. Hey, we are going to have some bread. I'll bring the pitchers. That's a little strange. Until you get to Leviticus, when God speaks about how this is to be handled. Leviticus 23, by the way, is going to speak about something else. What it's going to speak about is that they're all to be made of gold, but in that, there was going to be this particular thing. Sitting at the table are these loaves. God's provision. God's provision. By the way, the only way we're going to ever be able to eat the bread is for God to provide. Because no matter how it is, without God's reign, we're not going to have it. Without God's provision, no matter how much seed you sow, it's never going to grow. We know this. But when we offer this, follow me on it, God says, I want you to actually put one other thing on there, and that's a pitcher that has oil and frankincense. Oil and perfume. I have in this, literally, oil and frankincense. Gotten it from Israel. The frankincense, the oil we got from probably Morrison's. But... And by the grace of, of our friends here, by the grace of God through Rachel, she ground up the frankincense, which smells so much nicer when you ground it up. And it's interesting because for this to happen, now listen, listen, listen. This is going to be sacrificed. Now ultimately this can be eaten. But the bread that is sacrificed outside before it is always has to have it on it, always has to have this oil and frankincense on it. And so for that to happen, this also needs to be so. And that is called preparing it for the sacrifice. Does that make sense? You cannot offer it without salt and you cannot offer it without the oil and the frankincense. It is not an acceptable sacrifice unless it's properly prepared. So we take this bread and what we do with it is quite simple. We pour upon it then the oil and the frankincense and we thank the Lord for his provision. And when we do this, we say, Lord, I just want to tell you I love you. That's what we're saying by this. Now, are you with me on this? Get this image for a second. To prepare this for sacrifice, for its proper, because what will ultimately happen with the first fruits is we will take this and we will take the first fruits and we will grab them, we'll put them to the ground and we'll stamp on them and then we'll crush them into the ground because it was the very best we had to offer and we said, as this bit of the harvest was, may the rest of it be as well. So that's why we want to give it our best. Because if we put the lousy in there, we were, what we're saying is, may we have a lousy harvest. So we are preparing for the crushing, for the burial. We're preparing for the sacrifice. Are you with me on that? Sitting at the table is the bread. God's bread. The lemech panim. The bread of God's face. 
And there at the bread of God's face, the oil is being poured on it. Are you following me so far? Are you still there? Hello? Are you there? Okay. Well, if that's the case, then I'd like you to turn someplace with me, please. Would you turn to Matthew 26, please? Listen to these verses with me. I'm going to start in verse 6. When Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly, fragrant oil. And she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. His disciples saw it. They were indignant. They said, why this waste for this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But Jesus answered. He was aware of it. He said, why do you trouble this woman? She has done a good work for me. For you will always have the poor with you and you may do as you have always. But me you will not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Did you get it? For 1,400 years, priests have been doing this once a week. For 1,400 years, priests have been taking the oil with the fragrance and pouring it upon this, preparing it for sacrifice. God's provision. God's provision. And we say, thank you for your provision, God. We want this to rise up and smell beautiful and say, thank you for your provision. May we always delight in it. And if we were to smell this, which can grow in places, by the way, and which is mine, but is places in Israel, we would smell this and go, oh, that reminds me of God's provision, not just in the hills, but in the valleys as well. And understand, with that, here we are going, oh, God, this is your provision. And we'd stamp on it. We'd go, as the beginning is, the first fruits are, may the whole harvest be. Galatians says that Jesus was the first fruits of us because he is the first fruits that was crushed and buried and resurrected. Well, then what makes us, what makes the rest of the harvest? Well, that's us, beloved. That's the whole point. Now understand, this isn't your provision. This is God's provision. And that's what separates us from the rest of the world, friends, is that the rest of the world is trying to provide for God enough for Him to let them in. God has provided for us the sacrifice. And all He's simply asking for us to do is to partake of it, to enjoy it. And in enjoying it, that we would celebrate the one who has redeemed us. Now with that in mind, as we bring this around, he says, now this is something I want before me always. And this is Jesus' promise. In John 6.35 it says, In the bread of life, he who comes to me shall never hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. Do you know the one thing in all of Scripture that God said that was needed to be provided more than anything else? It wasn't for financial provision. 
That had been mentioned, I believe, five times. It wasn't for deliverance from their enemies. That had been mentioned a couple. But in Deuteronomy 21.8, Deuteronomy 32.43, Second Chronicles 30, verse 18, Psalm 65.3 and 79.9, Proverbs 16.6, Jeremiah 18.23, and Ezekiel 16.63, it's always the same thing. And that thing is atonement. The one thing that is asked of God to provide more than anything else is atonement. And if you don't know what that is, that is a covering of your guilt to stand innocent before God. Now, when we talk about God's provision today, what do we think of? When we talk about God's prosperity, where do we go today? Do I believe God wants us prosperous? Absolutely. But if you think that the best prosperity you could get is money, you ripped off your God. Why would God want you rich and not with him? Now, I'm not telling you every rich person can't be with God. But that's not God's greatest provision. God's greatest provision was the bread of life that Jesus himself claimed to be. That he gave himself up on the cross for our sins and rose again. And just beforehand, he was anointed. Now, one of these days, I'll bring in some spikenard. It's very strong. It'll fill the room. And understand, Jesus had already, at the beginning of the week, immersed himself in the mikvah. That's the only way he could make his way into the temple. So, I can tell you this. He hasn't bathed since. Now, that may sound weird for you, but it isn't for the average person in the Middle East 2,000 years ago. Which means it's very likely Jesus still smelled like this, hanging on the cross. That's profound. I wonder what that would be like to smell that still. I mean, imagine being in a tiny little room. A house roughly the size of where Jeffrey and Bruno are to the back. That's roughly the size of a house. And have that room filled with spikenard, which would be the bride's bride price, or would be her dowry. And here she is breaking it as she surrenders all of her future to Jesus and pours it upon him as it drips down upon his face and his beard. And the whole house is gagging from the smell. See what happens? And they're gagging from the smell because of how strong it is. And Jesus is about to go out and sweat like drops of blood at Gethsemane, be arrested and beaten, whipped and torn, have men gamble for the clothing that still would smell like that. Jesus says, from this point forth, when the gospel's preached, you're going to hear about this girl. You realize in this room today is the fulfillment of what Jesus just said. Now let me ask you, when you're asking for God's provision, what is it you're looking for? A husband? A wife? Job security? People to like you? In the end of it all, everything we look for can be down to this. We are looking for everything that God is without Him. That's all we're looking for. And the only way we're going to get it is with Him. That's the way He built us. What He just wants is us. As we go to prayer today, may God today show you He's never early, but He's never late. And He knows how to take care of you. Look at you all. You're well-dressed. You're well-fed. None of you look sickly, measly, mangly, any of that. 
He knows how to take care of you. No one else does. So where do you want to run? My God is. Well, let me say as David would in Psalm 16. He says, you are the portion of my inheritance. The lines, the cup and the portion of my inheritance, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Three of us, me, Diane, and Shirley, are all children of a father who has bequeathed now his property. And we all know there's good parts of the property. There's other parts that aren't so desirable. And God says, surely I'm going to give you from the well to the hill over here. And she goes, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. David says, you know, when I look at what I got and I look at what I see is, is you. That's what I see. How can I not think I have scored. There's no lottery on earth that compares to this. None compares to this. Jesus told the churches if they were willing to overcome as he speaks then in the book of Revelation. And he addresses, if he does, he says, I'll give you, and this is sort of a fun thing, he says, I'll give you the morning star. People go, what in the world is that? That's Revelation 2.28. Interesting, because by the time Revelation 22 happens, by Revelation 22, verse 16, God says, oh, listen, this is, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Did you put those two together? He says, if you're willing to endure and overcome, I'll give you the morning star. And then we, get, we finish with Revelation. He goes, oh yeah, I'm the morning star. You know what you win? You win me. Now, under almost any other circumstance, you'd go, ah, but we're talking about God here. The one who loves you, who is over heels uh, into you that would rather die than live without you. The one who will provide for you everything that is necessary, not everything you want, but everything you need. And he's constantly showing that either in the hill or the valley. And whether that's humility at the hill or peace in the valley, he knows how to give you what is necessary. Now, I don't know what you're struggling with today. I don't know what emotional bouts, physical bouts, circumstances are around you. But instead of simply praying, Jesus, give me what I need, my prayer today is we'll start to make that step towards Jesus be what I need. Because He is. And everything starts to change. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, I thank You so much for the beauty of this text. I thank You for what You've done here. I thank You, Jesus, for being the bread of life. And I thank You in being the bread of life that You have not left me without life, not without provision. You are my provision. And in being my provision, Lord, I don't want to walk around this earth stumbling, confused, digging for things in this world to satisfy me when I was created to be with You and I will never be satisfied until... I rest in You where I belong. So I pray today for every believer in this place, Lord, that we would stop being distracted by the things of this world that may be shiny and new and improved. You've never had to be new and improved because You were perfect to start with. How do you improve that? So Lord, I pray today 
That as we think about how it started with your presence, the beauty of your presence at the ark, and the second thing that we see is the power of your provision here at the table of showbread, that we can't help but think, God, this is all about you. Jesus, this is about you. This is about us. The part about us is that you love us and you want us and you desire us and you adore us and you cherish us. That's the part about us. The part that we should have in our hearts is the part that says that we should cherish and love and adore you infinitely more than you even do us because you're better. You're the better investment. We know that when you took us on, Lord, that you took on problems and baggage. You knew that. We haven't fooled you. But you love us and want us anyways. So, Lord, I just want to thank you. And for every one of us that are Christians here, Lord, I just pray right now, we would make up in our minds to stop trying to get from the world what only you can give. Lord, let us recognize we're never alone. We're never without help. We're never without love. And I just want to be, Lord, like that woman, pouring forth the sweet adoration upon your head. Lord, everything that would be of value, broken and poured upon you. I recognize when I do that, even those that might claim to be yours might have a problem and say, hey, this is a waste. But Lord, how could anything ever be wasted when it's lavished on you? And so I pray today, Lord, that you give me that kind of devotion, that kind of love. And while heads are bowed and and eyes are closed here in this room, in this sanctuary. If you've never accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, if today you recognize that the biggest difference between real biblical Christianity and anything else that's called religion is that in biblical Christianity, God does the providing. He provides His Son. He provides payment for our sins. He provides us with new life. He provides us with hope. He provides us with His presence. He provides us with the change that is necessary. He comes and dwells inside of us. All of that. If today you recognize that God has provided for you surrender that you can offer Him. And He's provided for you amnesty from your guilt, forgiveness, purity, a new life, adoption into his own home. Like Mephibosheth, though broken from the fall, today we can delight in being brought to the table carried by you. By your atonement, have the right to sit at the table of the King because you have offered us that mercy. And if that's you in this room right now and and you recognize the need, because though God has done all the work, there is still the requirement of accepting that gift. He's offered it to you. I'm going to pray a prayer. And as I pray this prayer, I ask you to consider. And if you agree with this prayer today, I ask you to give a resounding, confident Amen. And what you're saying is, I agree Let that prayer be my prayer. So be it in my life. And here's the prayer. God, I confess to you, I am broken. I'm not perfect. I'm a faulty man, faulty person. I've sinned against you. 
And in that sin, I stand guilty before you in my own merit. But you already knew all of this before I was ever created. And in your love for me, you knew that there would be this need. And so you sent Jesus to die on the cross, your only begotten Son. To die on the cross so that all of my guilt could be punished. And there, at the cross, the penalty for my sin died. And just as your scripture promised, he rose again on the third day, offering me a brand new life, no longer under the bondage of my sin, but now set free. So with that, I say yes. I say yes to Jesus, confessing him as my ransom, as my Savior, and as my resurrected Lord. And now I say, have me, adopt me, make me your own. And if your desire really is to satisfy my soul, then do so, I, I pray. Have me now, I'm yours, in Jesus' name. And if you agree, I ask you to say, Amen.